Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Finnerin's Wake. I am, with unbending commitment to the cause of great conversation, your faithful friend and host, Daniel Finnerin. Thank you so very much for joining me today. If, dear friend and listener, you find the content on this channel enlightening, entertaining, soothing to the ear, or stimulating to the mind, please do consider subscribing to this channel and sharing it with friends and family. Here on Finneran's Wake, you'll find a lively assortment of guests from whom you can learn a great deal, or with whom you can simply beguile and pass your day. That said, I humbly welcome you to join our growing community of conversationalists, of which you'll be not only a valued, but a highly cherished member. My distinguished guest today, with whom I'm very eager to chat, is Reed Mittenbuehler, a prolific writer. Reed is the author of three extraordinary books, Bourbon Empire, The Past and Future of America's Whiskey, Wild Minds, The Artists and Rivalries That Inspired the Golden Age of Animation, and most recently, Wanderlust, an eccentric explorer, an epic journey, a lost age, of which I have my copy right here, as you can there see. It is. <laughs> uh, Reed also contributes to Airmail, The Atlantic, Slate, The Daily Beast, and Whiskey Advocate, as if the delicious libation of which he is both historian and connoisseur were in need of much advocacy. Reed, <laughs> thank you so very much for joining me today. Thanks for having me on. Of course. The man in the portrait, you state in the prologue to your latest work, Wanderlust, demanded my attention. The portrait of which you speak is not that which adorns the cover of your book, uh, this portrait, by which I was, uh, not unlike you upon first seeing it, absolutely captivated. Uh, the portrait, rather, that demanded your attention is suspended atop a majestic fireplace on either side of which two heads of antelope are imposingly mounted. It's located in New York's exclusive Explorers Club, of which your friend Josh is a member, and to which, with the publication of this book, I have no doubt that you'll be granted admittance. <laughs> the man, of course, is Peter Freuken, the Danish explorer to whom you dedicate over 400 pages. Tell me, whether it's the portrait that you saw or the one by which I was totally enthralled, what is it about this man, about Peter Freuken, and the image specifically that demands one's attention? Well, so the first thing, Peter was almost six and a half feet tall. So he's a tall guy and that always demands attention. And it's hard to see in the photo that you have, the Irving Penn portrait, which I wasn't familiar with actually when I saw the painting that's above the fireplace in the Explorers Club. You can see in the painting, he has a peg leg, a wooden leg, you know, it's kind of pirate-like. So that demands attention. So you've got a really tall guy, he's got a peg leg. And in the painting, he's wearing, you know, a, a coat with a turtle and kind of a suit. Um, he's got this wild beard. And really the thing that, 
grabbed my attention really most fully was what you know, you're in this place explorers club which has all these members like teddy roosevelt newt rasmussen lots of astronauts uh, thor heyerdahl lots of illustrious names so you immediately ask yourself well, why this guy like what what did this guy do to get his painting over the fireplace in a place like this and i go up to the painting and there's a little plaque underneath a little brass plaque says peter Fraken. i've never heard of the guy so i google him and all these crazy stories jump out of the internet now you know as with all things with the internet you've got to be wary you know be, be skeptical and you know, there's a lot of weird false claims about him, but I can immediately tell there was a story and it was a rabbit hole worth going down. And so I did. And I learned that he had written several memoirs. He had become a best-selling novelist after having all these adventures in the Arctic. He ended up in golden age Hollywood, where in the early 30s, he had what at the time was the most expensive, biggest extravaganza movie ever made. Um, he later ended up in the Danish resistance during World War II. And, you know, there's a Forrest Gump quality to him. He's all over the world, popping up kind of in the background during all these great moments in history. So that's a, you know, a, a funny story, kind of a where's Waldo aspect to the man. And as I learned more about him, the thing that really struck me is I realized that the entire 20th century, all the forces that shaped that time, political, economic, and cultural, they collapsed down to the smaller scale of this man's life. So he becomes a lens for viewing this really interesting moment in history. And I decided that that's what the book would be. And I didn't want to write a biography per se, where you kind of do the nuts and bolts of like he was born here and there. It was really, I was like, this is an adventure story taking us through this really tumultuous period in history. And he's the perfect guide for going there. So that's what the book became. And it absolutely reads as such. It, it isn't a, a dry academic, biographical sketch, although, you, you know, your material is flawlessly sourced and everything checks out. So it is historically very accurate, um, but it is really an adventure story. And like I said, the adventure begins with the, with the jacket, with that Irving Penn photograph, uh, which displays him in his pelage and that unruly <laughs> beard and that, and that, um, that countenance of sort of suspicion and, and haughtiness. And uh, it's the way in which he's contrasted then with his, I think it was his third wife at the time is, is, also, is absolutely striking. And of course is a testament to Penn's photographic genius. Um, and she's, so she's wearing this Christian Dior dress. I think it's Christian Dior. She had actually, she was a fashion illustrator for Vogue and had done the illustrations for the issue of that magazine that introduced Christian Dior to America. And she's wearing pearls and everything about her is so elegant and sophisticated. And there's that element to him too. You know, he's an explorer and you associate him with this very rough world. And, you know, he, he, and he certainly should be associated with that. But then he also, you know, Hollywood glamour and he was a writer and he lived in New York and he, so he kind of went back and forth between these two worlds all the time. And, and so she helps round him out in that picture. It's like you, you see the glamour and the elegant, you know, the, this other thing that was also very much part of him. Like they're not in contradiction to each other. So no, no, that's, there's, a, that, there's, there's a wonderful yeah. complementarity. And let me just show it one more time. I know it doesn't come through perfectly on the on the camera, but just so everybody can get an essence of what we're looking at. And to me, this is one of the great, the photo and probably unknown photographs of uh, portraits of all time. I just, I absolutely love it now. <laughs> I feel as yeah. though I need this mounted on my wall. 
Um, <laughs> we are speaking now about Dagmar. Is that how you pronounce her name? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, so Freuken was thrice married, first to Navarana, an indigenous woman whom he met on one of his expeditions to Greenland, uh, next to the Danish actress and publishing heiress Magdalene, and finally to the fashion illustrator uh, and Vogue contributor Dagmar, with whom he poses so uh, strikingly uh, mm -hmm. and is so obviously contrasted in the Irving Penn photograph that serves as the book's cover. Uh, so in what ways do you think each of these very different women influenced Freuken? And what do you think it says about him as a man that he had such a varied taste in, in, in women, going from an indigenous woman who, as you describe in your book, used uh, urine, <laughs> I think, to, yeah. to cleanse her hair or to make herself more attractive um, yeah. to a man. Um, and then that was, an, that was another Inuit woman. Who I'm sorry, that, that might have been the first from, Inuit, Inuit yeah, woman. Yeah, from but, Southern but then, Greenland. So Freyton right, got right, around. So, let's, so let's moving, just put it that yeah. way. Yeah. <laughs> so moving from, moving from a woman who used urine as a perfume to a woman who was using Chanel and uh, Dior mm. <laughs> perfumes uh, on, her own, on her own body. So what, again, the question is, you know, in what ways did these very different women influence him? And what does it say about this interesting individual, uh, Freuken, that he had such a diverse taste in women? So all these different ladies uh, symbolize something about him. You know, the man contained multitudes. You can't really put Peter Freuken in a box. And you can't do that, you know, with his politics, which could be all over the board. You know, he liked to be a contrarian. So if he was in a conversation with people on the far left, he would kind of strike a chord that would strike people as a little more right. If he's with people who are a little more conservative, he would strike a chord that, you know, he'd sound like Karl Marx or something. I can't put him in a box politically, culturally. Um, he was a very heterodox thinker. Um, you know, his relationships with all these women were very different, uh, but they all reflect some different part of him. You know, he's a he's a kaleidoscope, really, like a prism, and it refracts all these different colors. And so Navarana, that first marriage, you know, he was drawn to the North as a young student. He had been a medical student and realized that was not the life for him. Drops out of school and goes on his first expedition to Greenland. He's there for several years goes back and when he goes back to live, he meets Navarana. Um, he was always attracted to the, the far north. It was kind of a snowy Bohemia for him. He was very Bohemian. He had been parts of these art communities you know, back in um, back in Copenhagen, later in Weimar, Germany, you know, in Berlin. He's part of that whole scene, you know, the film scene. This is as Hitler starting his rise to power and Freiken um, had a, a strong dislike for the Nazis. Um, so that that's going to cause a big confrontation in our story. Um, at that point, he's married to his second wife. His first wife, unfortunately, uh, she she dies of the influenza, Spanish flu. Um, you know, he'd been part of the theater scene. So his second wife is a margarine heiress, margarine publishing heiress. Um, she had been an actress in some edgier silent films. So you can see this, you know, Reflected, he was a showman, he was a performer, he liked the theater, he later became a successful novelist and screenwriter. So, you know, you can see different aspects of his personality, this attraction to the far north and the ruggedness and being out in nature. Uh, that's his, his first wife. Um, and she was a very strong, independent woman, which he appreciated. All of his wives were, you know, that way. 
Uh, the second wife, it was an open relationship. So they weren't always faithful to each other, you know, so it's very fragmented, it's rocky, um, it provides great drama for the story. And then the third wife from that Irving Penn photo, Dagmar, what's interesting about her is, I feel like Freakin learned a lot of lessons about how to be in a relationship. Uh, his relationships up to that point weren't always smooth. And he's much older when he meets Dagmar. And in a lot of ways, she's a perfect fit for him. He had kind of learned how to relax a little bit, live around other people. They just found a groove that seemed much more comfortable um, than his first two marriages could sometimes seem. So he was divorced to the, the, the second wife. And so in a way, you know, she's representative of someone who's learned a lot. And this was kind of a redeeming uh, second chance or more accurately, like it's a third chance a third. for the guy to, yeah, to, to have a, a more, um, a more functional marriage. Yeah. Uh, and it's interesting because you describe the, hmm, the liberality with which women were shared in the Inuit culture. I, I don't know if that's the proper way of phrasing it, but um, I was surprised to learn that, um, especially among the, um, the adventurers who, uh, European adventurers or American adventurers who, who went to Greenland, it seemed to be the case that the, the indigenous people, the, uh, maybe the men especially, would, would encourage um, uh, the women to I don't know exactly what the relationship, how you one would describe the relationship. You're, you're I, I mean, in the minefield here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It. I don't yeah. have the proper socio-cultural socio words to express <laughs> it. But if I understood it correctly, it was almost as though um, when the men would go out uh, in, on their excursions, women would maybe be appointed to them or women would be left behind to... Uh, comfort the the men who were still on the on the base and the settlement do i have that roughly correct well it it was so you know culture was you know very different than the western culture freiken came from and as he wrote about you know culture which he adored and was adopted into so he was also very much part of it there there are ceremonies for this thing and you know they accepted him into their culture he had married into their culture and in his writing he always you know he wanted to bring that culture and share it with the rest of the world, with the West. So he's very careful about how he described it because he knew that Westerns would be very judgmental about it and they'd be judgmental about um, the sexual norms of, you know, of, of the Inuit, um, which was polygamous. Um, you know, marriage wasn't nearly as formalized as it was in the West. And you would have situations where if, if a man left to go hunting, the woman would stay at home but maybe sleep with another man in the village. And, you know, there was, there were a lot of norms and scaffolding that kind of are, it's a little hard for Westerners who have grown up in Western culture to, to, to totally understand. So it was, uh, it was a polygamous culture. Um, Freiken's first child wasn't actually his genetically. I mean, they could tell as soon, as soon as it was born, um, you know, so, Brecken was always very uh, careful about how he talked about this, about this, about this kind of stuff, though. Um, and so that's that's kind of a quick way to to explain it. Um, you know, I think Freakin appreciated that about the culture. As I said, he often did see it as a as a snowy Bohemia, and I think Bohemia is a is a, is a really good way to put it. His other relationships 
with Western women were open, you know, when he's in Weimar, Germany and Berlin as part of their film scene, you know, he's going to nudist parties and things like that. So do you he think was that a, he was born a Bohemian? Do you think his Bohemianism kind of preceded his adventures up to the great North or maybe he became more kind of eccentric while up there further displaced from, from Europe? It could have, yeah, for sure. You know, he was born into a middle-class family. You might describe him as upper middle-class, you know, comfortable. Um, his siblings, and he had a number of other siblings, his brother actually was much more staid. It's funny, they had an interesting relationship where the brother became a doctor and pursued this life that Freakin very much rejected. Early on, Freakin was like, I can't be a doctor. That's like living my life in a circle instead of a line. Um, you know, same thing every single day. And the brother... You know, it wasn't a terrible relationship, but there was tension there. Um, but his parents, at a very young age, promoted him, you know, getting out, get outside, burn off the energy, which, you know, with seven or so other kids, you kind of have to, otherwise they're going to go insane. You can't have that many kids running around the house. So, you know, they, they, you know, when he announced to them that he's dropping out of school to go on his first Arctic expedition, his mother wrote him and said, you know, great. You know, go go do it. I think they realize that this is your destiny. You're going to need to do it. You need to get get this out of your system or whatever. Um, if we hold you back, you know, nothing's good going to going to come of that. So, whether or not he was born a Bohemian, um, I really don't know. I, I think it's probably fair to say that he just kind of grew into one. Like that was his natural tendency. You know, his brother, his siblings weren't always that way, but he was attracted to people who were and. Those were his his tendencies. He pushed back against society a little bit. He was a little contrarian. He was that way all throughout. I all like throughout to think there's I like to think there's something of a little genetic component that that causes that contrarianism or that bohemianism. I could be wrong. Uh, yeah, but he also, there are also a few uh, luminary names among whom he grew up in, and those were the the Bohr brothers, Niels mm -hmm. Bohr, and uh, I forget his brother's name. I mean, Nobel laureate physicists and and uh, and scientists. So he may not have been the most intellectually gifted young man in his neighborhood, but you're looking at Nobel Prize winning people. Yeah, um, he, was, he was definitely very smart, very intellectually gifted. But I think I use the line in the book that when you're in school with the genius Bohr brothers, you know, who later work on the Manhattan Project and I mean, well-known geniuses, it's like trying to swim in the frothy wake of an ocean liner. It's kind of like, how do you, how do you compete with that? It gave him a bit of an inferiority complex. He wrote, you know, like, and it's a little unfair, right? You're, you're, in, it's like being in school with Albert Einstein. And so you're, if you're comparing yourself to that, it's like, you're, you're screwed. Right. So, um, he was very smart and he was a bit of an autodidact. You know, he read a lot. He read voraciously. He just didn't like to learn in stuffy classrooms. That's one of the interesting things about these expeditions and something that I, I don't think gets brought up a lot in other books about Arctic exploration. There's many great books about exploration, but you know, they focus on the drama and those stories and the conflict, which, you know, being out on the ice, fighting wild animals, falling through the ice, almost dying, that sort of thing. But there's also long moments where you're kind of bored on a ship. You're stuck, you know, the weather's bad outside. So these ships would have huge libraries. And, you know, if you're on an expedition for several years, there's plenty of time to learn languages. You've got other crew members who speak those other languages so you can practice, uh, teach yourself things, you know, zoology or read literature or whatever. Um, one of the interesting tidbits I learned about Freakin is 
later on when he's in Golden Age Hollywood, he becomes good friends with Dmitry Tiamkin, who's the composer, does a lot of famous film scores for Alfred Hitchcock and John Ford, and nice famous old Westerns. And Tiamkin was amazed at how much of a scholar Freakin was about old Russian literature. Like the guy could have been a professor of Russian lit. You know, he was a fan of it. He'd said plenty of times. So, um, you know, Freakin was that way. He was actually a wealth of knowledge, but just he didn't have a traditional academics vibe. Neither do you. Do you con connect with him in some <laughs> ways over that? Uh, you speak about his autodidacticism. Uh, is that a sort of a trait that you share? That's something I certainly value. That's one of the things that I liked about Freakin is that Freakin can't be put into a box. You can't, you know, put him in a column and say it's this way. And we're at a point right now in our culture where I think a lot of people try to put everybody else, you know, figure out where they are. What column can I put you in? You know, if you vote this way, well, you're this. You vote that way, well, you're that. And I think a lot of people resent that. I think a lot of people feel like, well, you know, I, I agree with this side on this issue, but maybe this side on that issue, and it gets conflicted and no one feels like any label is really appropriate for them. And that certainly applies to Freakin. So, you know, when we say that Freakin is unique and he certainly is unique, that's not something that makes him different than the rest of us. It actually is something that makes him the same. And so when I'm reading about him and, you know, in one crowd, you know, that maybe he has like similar politics too, but they're just talking a hard line. So he kind of starts countering. He's like the fish swimming upstream. He likes to be a little contrarian. I certainly identified with that. Like it, it was a natural aversion to group think and this kind of hive mindness. Um, but I think a lot of people that kind of resonates with them. So in that way, I found Freakin a very kind of universal figure that a lot of people would kind of like, because like, we all have a little bit of that in us sometimes, or, or a lot of us do. So that's one of the things I found most charming about him. I really wanted to draw that out is just how, you know, but he wasn't churlish. Like when he was in certain, I mean, he could be, but when he was in certain groups, he wasn't arguing simply just to be that argumentative guy. Um, there was a charm to him and a, and, a, and a sense of humor. He was prankish. He could be a little raconteur. And that, that kind of softens that, that impulse, I think. Yeah. It's funny to imagine a man, a hulking man at six foot five inches to be impish, but in some ways, maybe he was a little bit impish. I think you're absolutely right. And I think that's kind of a visceral sentiment that most Americans have, or at least had, is that that desire to be a little bit contrarian, to go against the, the tide. Uh, we've seen less and less of that, I think, <laughs> in the past few years, especially um, in the, during the course of the pandemic. Um, yeah. I'm, and of course, having lived through that, period of history, you know, the past couple of years, I, I wonder how figures like Freakin would respond to, to things like this. You know, um, how do you think he would respond to, let's say, the, the COVID-19 pandemic? A, a guy who's, you know, staunchly contrarian, very masculine and very hearty. He's cut off his own foot because of frostbite. He's suffered <laughs> to, yeah. long, long, long winters uh, <laughs> um, in isolation, essentially, in an igloo. How would he, um, how would he react to a, to a more modern uh, issue like that? How do you think? So during the, you know, 1918, um, during the Spanish flu, the influenza, he almost died. It almost killed him and there was one incident where 
he was put in a ward for people who are considered to be on death's door. There may be 11 people. And the next morning, he was one of two who survived. And his first wife died of Spanish flu. So as far as COVID-19, he probably took it pretty seriously. Um, right. You know, so that's interesting. That is almost a, a direct parallel. Direct parallel, yeah. The threat's yeah, very yeah. real. And, and he realized that it was, you know, very real. It almost killed him, you know. And he was a strong, strapping guy. So it's nothing to screw around with. Um, but I... And a, and a larger, I have found myself often thinking about him, like, how would he fit in today? And I do this whenever I'm reading history, um, you know. And of course, he's shaped by his own time and history and all these influences. So it's impossible to really know. But, you know, Fricken was also an activist. There were a lot of causes that he took on. And that's admirable. But I was thinking, like, what would Fricken have been like if he had had social media? And I had to come to the unfortunate conclusion that he would have been insufferable. A troll. Be, he'd troll. He'd be a, trolling it. <laughs> maybe, maybe not a troll, but he'd, you know, he'd be that guy. Like I realized with like, especially Twitter, I don't know if there's a name for this effect. I should name this, but I've noticed that there's all these people who you'll meet in real life. And, you know, they're, they're nice to be around. You know, they're interesting. You can have an interesting conversation with them. And then you check out their Twitter accounts and they're just, they're awful. And even if you agree with their politics somewhat, it's like you just don't really appreciate having them forced down your throat and it's just obnoxious. And I've seen, you know, there's people I know that I'm good friends with who are lovely people. And then I see their you know, social media accounts and it's like, oh, what a, what a jerk. And I worry that he probably would have been that way. And there was an incident in the book where he was going around and this is after the Nazis occupied Denmark and he's living in Denmark. And he's going around being very loud, loud mouth, you know, talking about the Nazis. And sure enough, yeah, of course you agree. But someone takes him aside, a friend takes him aside and says, you know, cool it. This is a moment for quiet action as opposed to just sort of loud talking. You know, in a, in a, in a sense, he was kind of virtue signaling. Well, he's not really doing anything. He's just putting on a lot of loud talk. And, you know, freaking takes it to heart. And, and, you know, today you have a lot of people who want everyone to take a very public stand on every issue. And it's like, well, silence is violence. And you kind of sit there and you hear it and you're like, I, I kind of take it as violence, you know, that, that you're not being silent, that you won't just shut up for a minute. <laughs> and so... You know, I think of Reichen sometimes in those terms. Where I'm like, what would he have been like? It, it's easy that he could have been very obnoxious. And I'm really glad that um, we didn't have to see him that way. <laughs> if yeah. that's how he would have been. I mean, who, who really knows for sure? We don't know for sure. It's, it's just fun a, to speculate. It, it's such a fun, I don't know if you'd call it a counterfactual. It's not really that. But it's such a fun game to play to 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 displace these figures from their their place and time into to implant them in the current age, especially, or in any yeah. age, but the current, especially. And, and that's, that's sort of why I ask that question. I ask, okay, well, how, you know, given his characteristics, how would he respond to a, you know, an international emergency or to a, like a big political upheaval? And in some ways we, we know <laughs> without, of course, social media, um, because you mentioned his politics regarding that orientation. He aligned himself with the social Democrats he was no great fan of capitalism, but he was also a little But, but also very capitalist. He, was, he, was right. very capitalist. he ran exactly. a trading post. And, yeah. Exactly. And he was a, a capitalist in Greenland. And then, of course, he went in. He was a novelist selling in, uh, his books and his works. And then he went into Hollywood. Uh, but simultaneously, you know, he was a little impressed by 
by Soviet style communism, right? He, yeah. he, he traveled extensively, as you note, he went to Bolshevik uh, Russia in the, in the early years, uh, you know, of, of Lenin and Stalin's regime. And then he also, like you said, was in Germany, in Weimar, Germany, which was culturally a very uh, ripe place, but of course, politically was taking a very dark turn. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I find the fact that he's uncategorizable, one of his great attributes, and I always uh, try to inhabit that as much as I can without being contrarian for the sake of being contrarian. You want to be uh, difficult to place, I think. But maybe following, yeah. uh, following that, that thread, you know, of, of which modern American politician do you think that he would be a, a supporter? Do you think he would be a, a Bernie bro? Would he be a Bernie Sanders supporter? Would, would he be a Donald Trump uh, fan? What do you think? It's Well, what's funny is you bring up both Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, and this is a conversation that, you know, I a lot of people kind of seem to ignore several years ago. It's just how much overlap there can actually be, be between those two those two political groups. There's a certain populism um, among both of them. And, you know, those two people are very like diametrically opposed, very different, but among certain parts of their supporters, there's actually a lot of overlap that I find really interesting. The thing that I found admirable about Franken is that he seemed to be very flexible in his thinking. Like if he witnessed evidence, um, you know, that would change his mind on an issue, he would kind of follow it. Um, communism is a perfect example as politics were very lefty, you know, early on, he was part of Scandinavian, the social Democrat, which is very different than being a communist. Sometimes those degrees of differences don't always get parsed out when Americans are talking about them. Um, but early on, he was very curious about communism, just like a lot of people were, you know, it was, it was this new form of government. A lot wasn't really known about, a lot wasn't known about what was going on in the Soviet Union. And you have this in the United States too, in the thirties. 30s, you're mired in the Great Depression. It's terrible. You've got a lot of Americans who are like, this is not working. You know, this this capitalism isn't working. So they became curious about communism. This is something I talked a lot about in my second book, Wild Minds, on animation, because a lot of animators later got blacklisted and had a blacklist for flirting with communism. Um, but, you know, that's something that in America, you know, it, it, fortunately it's protected. You can go and explore, you can talk, you know, it's not like it's verboten, you can't talk about it, or at least that's that's the way it should be. And Freiken was very intrigued by communism, but as he's on a couple of different occasions traveling extensively in the Soviet Union, um, becomes pretty critical. You know, he sees like, you know, he sees that Stalin style communism is a mess and, and, and actually quite frankly, it's murderous. And so, and he wrote about that later and you can see it in his personal correspondence with um some american friends who also were very curious with with communism um you know he he's he's kind of looking at the excesses of two different forms of government when they're both taken into their extreme form and he's very critical um so in a lot of ways his thinking was moderated um so when you ask me what kind of politician he would be you know i'm like well would he be kind of a centrist and you know moderated you know would he it's hard to say, you know, um, so you'd really have to look at him on certain issues. It's funny, you know, <laughs> this gets back to his contrary nature. So he's up in the north and he's living off the land and he's constantly eating animals. I mean, the diet among the Inuit is all meat, especially the far northern Greenland Inuit, just meat, 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 meat. Freakin has killed thousands of animals in his life because he had to. That's how, you know, that's how you live as you survive. Comes back to Denmark 
and he takes on this uh, cause. He looks at the production of foie gras, you know, where you're force feeding a goose, and you know, it, a lot of people think it's very cruel to get the liver really fatty. You know, you jam a tube down this animal's neck, and you're you know, feeding it cream, it's buttery. And he led a campaign to get it banned in Denmark, which was successful. So here you have someone who's killed a thousand animals, but also, you know, in you know way of thinking, it was you know, animals shouldn't suffer. They respected the animal. You know, this is giving us life. Um, you know, way of thinking of hunting like that. And 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 Franken certainly was. He took no great pleasure in killing. Um, but he drew this line of cruelty when he's traveling in Latin America, you know, he goes to all these cockfights and was just kind of repulsed by it. It's like, you're making these animals fight. They're hurting each other. This is unnecessary pain. He hated bullfighting. Um, you know, he just thought that it was kind of backward. Um, so, you know, he looks like the ultimate kind of traditionally, you know, masculine, masculine guy. He looks like a pirate. But in a lot of ways, you know, his thinking was very flexible about these issues and he could be quite sensitive. And what's funny is his voice was so soft. You, know, you think he'd have this 10 acre voice, a big booming voice. But when you hear recordings of him speak, like in the movie he made, it's called Eskimo. He plays the villainous sea captain. He totally looks the part. But when you watch the movie, he's not the greatest casting because he's got this soft, almost sweet voice. It's not so great for playing a there are extant recordings of his voice. I wasn't sure when you described the the film. Of course, it was one of, I think, at the time, one of the most expensive productions yeah. uh, that that Hollywood was was putting out, uh, and it wasn't particularly well received. I think critically or commercially, it was I, mixed reviews. It, you know, kind of yeah. broke, made a small profit, kind of broke even. But um, it's not great... it's not really well remembered today. No, no, no. It's yeah. it's been forgotten. Yeah. And, yeah, can't but, find it on streaming. That, yeah, and I looked. Is it a silent? Is it a? I mean, I, I suppose not. But my supposition was that it was a silent film, and that he he couldn't be heard in that. But I'm obviously wrong. So he had a soft voice. Yeah, no, you 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 can hear him, and it's not a silent film. So originally, when he wrote the novel, it was in the 20s during the silent era, and it started out when he was working with some German film companies to make it. It was going to be silent, and then that's a really fun part of the book. Um, Al Jolson's The Jazz Singer comes out, also the talkies are in, and you know, it's this big moment in Hollywood history. That's right. And Joe May, the director who in Germany was working on it, is like, this is going to be the future. We can't make a, a silent film. MGM gets the rights and they want to make a new big extravaganza and they film the whole thing. Um, great portions of it in a new piat. They wanted to use the original, dog, and they used intertitles to translate. Um, and then Franken speaks, his English was quite good. Um, so yeah, no, it's, it's, it's not a silent film. It came out in 33. Um, and you, you, you can hear him and you can also, if you go to YouTube, you can see him on the $64,000 question near the end of his life. He's on this famous game show and you, you can hear his voice that way. In, um, in, how very, many, in how many languages was he fluent? Do you know? Um, I'd have to count like a lot of Europeans, you know, he had, he was fluent in obviously Danish and English, uh, spoke a little bit of German. Um, and then he was also very fluent in some Inuit dialects yeah. in Greenland and, a, it went, you know, in with the Inuit, 
it's interesting, you know, you're at the very top of the globe. So you got the Greenland Inuit and then the Canadian Inuit and then Alaska and Siberian, but they're all at the very top end of the globe. So they're actually pretty close to each other. When you hear Siberia and then Greenland, you think, oh, it's so far away, but it's like time zones up there, right? It's like there's 10 time zones, just right, right. So um, when he traveled to, you know, during the fifth Thule expedition, when he travels to the Canadian Arctic, and he meets, you know, different groups of Inuit there. They speak slightly different versions of the language, but he's able to pick on it, pick it up pretty fast, and then become fluent in it because they're similar enough, it's like strong dialects. Yeah, yeah. Now, in order more intimately to uh, connect yourself with the Inuit culture, did you perhaps take a few rabbit holes down into studying their their history and? Did you have any desire to travel to Greenland? Did you make any travels to Denmark or, or to, the, uh, to the Arctic? I, because of the pandemic, uh -huh. I wasn't able to do a lot of traveling. I actually was able to get a lot of archives that I wanted to visit to scan their files, often in text-readable format, which was you know, research for books, especially like this, in just the last 10 years. It's changed a lot in what you were able to get digitally and the tools that archives have to be able to send you stuff you might otherwise have to, to, to fly there for. Um, as far as Inuit culture, that was one of the fair, my favorite parts of the research is just reading stacks of books. I list them in my bibliography. I also made a lot of calls and talked to a number of Inuit people. I reached out to the Inuit Circumpolar Council, which is kind of a pan Inuit group headquartered out of, I believe, Ottawa. And through them was introduced to, you know, academics or just regular Inuit folks, just, just to get a range of opinions. And it was very interesting to talk to them about Peter Franken because um, some of them were already familiar with him and knew of his work. And they generally really liked him and, and respected what he had done. And um, it was always a little surprising to hear um, their opinions about him. So that was interesting. I'm trying to remember the name of the, the food. What, it began with a P. The, it was prominent in the, in the Inuit culture. You described it as being a, a combination of dried mixed berries and tallow and meat. Do you remember the name of that particular dish? Oh, Pem yeah, not something with pemmican. a P. Pemmican. Pemmican. Have you attempted a little homemade pemmican? Because I read that and I thought, my goodness, especially for those who are inclined toward that keto diet, maybe sans the berries. It actually sounded quite good. <laughs> it's like a cliff art. It wasn't an, that wasn't an Inuit thing. That was actually an explorer thing. So ah, I out, see. I see. They needed, yeah, they needed something that could stay preserved and that had right. this calorie dense. And so dense. it was this mix of, it's like this canned food that was this like brick, this brick of calories with yeah, berry, all kinds of stuff mixed. I think the recipes varied. Um, you know, you could basically eat it sort of like a cliff bar. Uh, it would keep so pemmican, yeah, 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 yeah. a really unadulterated cliff bar. I mean, that's yeah. hard. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I'm inclined to, to maybe, um, to bring that back. I don't know, maybe in, in sell it as uh, to the keto community. I think that could be successful. It sounds yeah. like if it were good enough for, for, uh, Freiken and his men and the women, I suppose, with whom they, yeah. uh, uh, spent their days, then it certainly would be would be good for us. Let me ask you. Um, you know, we know that history is filled with 
scores of intrepid explorers uh, you know, by whom new worlds were discovered and new standards of bravery set. Uh, we think of Christopher Columbus, Vasco da Gama, uh, James Cook, types of men like these. Uh, and of course, Peter Freuken is one such explorer. Of course, he is, comes to us from a different age, a newer, more recent age. Uh, but if you were to go on an expedition, by whom would you want to be accompanied? Uh, by whom would you want to be led? Would you choose a Freuken-type figure, or would you choose somebody else? I probably would choose Freuken, because one of the things that made Freakin so interesting to write about is he could get a little careless sometimes, you know, like there's a, there's a story in the book where he's out with some Americans and they're sledding across frozen Melville Bay, which is some of the most treacherous section of, but well, it's not even terrain because it's frozen over part of the sea. And they get halfway across and Freakin hadn't brought a compass. Now, you know, he had been living on the Inuit and the Inuit weren't necessarily using compasses, you know, they would just use the stars or whatever, but you know, it's a tool that's available and the Americans are like, who is this guy? Like, what is going on? You know, Freakin, you know, he was like a cat with nine lives and constantly dodging death and he managed to survive. So I guess he was pretty good. Um, I don't know if I'd really want to be out with him. He'd probably be an interesting companion. Uh, <laughs> Ernest Shackleton would probably be the one. You know, Ernest Shackleton's the guy who when everyone was stranded and lost, managed to get a whole crew of guys off the ice, off out of Antarctica, all alive. So it's like, okay, I'm, I'm going to throw my hat in with that dude. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a good, Not that's a good Perry. Point. Perry was a jerk compared by, by most accounts. Mm -hmm. um, but Shackleton, you know, kept everyone's spirits up. He knew how to, he was a good leader. Freakin'. Freakin would be fun. To, I'd want Freakin in the crew, but I wouldn't want him in charge. Let's just put it that way. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I agree with that. You want him on your team, but, you know, not, yeah, leading, the, yeah. not leading the team. <laughs> I want him around. I want him yeah. around, but I don't want to have to take orders from him because who knows yeah. what's going to happen. The, story, for the, the stories would be worth his presence alone, mm -hmm. although he'd take up a lot of space. <laughs> He's a yeah. big frame. Uh, now, during one of Freakin's expeditions, you describe an extended period of time uh, during which he was almost entirely isolated from the rest of humankind. Uh, he was buried somewhere deep in the Arctic at, I think, one of the outposts, deprived of any human contact. And mm. aside from maybe a few books, pretty much without any form of entertainment. <laughs> so again, I'm going to ask you, imagine that you were in his position, but were permitted uh, to bring along one book and maybe one piece of music with which to beguile your time. What book and what one piece of music, assuming you had an iPod capable of playing one song, <laughs> what would you bring with you uh, to the Great North if you were to be isolated there for an extended period of time? Fantastic question. It's the kind of question that you really want a lot of time to think about because it's such a big decision. You know, it's like, oh, one piece of music. I don't know. You're not going to say, uh, you know, Probably not, you know, a Metallica song or something like that. Be, this is your, <laughs> it might be a great version. song, but you're like, <laughs> only you yeah. will hear this. And you're seals. like, what's what's a song that would be great in the morning, but also at the evening? You know, maybe something classical. But I can't think. I can't think of a single song that wouldn't really you wouldn't start to get tired of uh, over time. That's right. So maybe I would ask instead of a song, could I just have an instrument so that I could you teach myself? Have, 
you can uh, well, I, I suppose the finger plucking might be a little difficult in that fritty yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> would be uh, so no guitar no nothing stringed um yeah let's say you have a, let's say you have two months two months if you could listen to one song for two months that's not too long a time what would that what would that song be Let's go, let's go with a very, very long song. You know, so maybe some kind of like rock bond and off piece or Debussy or something like that. Just so we get a lot of time, something with a lot of movements within the song. So you got a lot of, you get a lot of diversity and so a lot of variation. So I got, I'll go something like that. And then That's as an far excellent as the vision. And how about the book, the literature, what would you choose? The book, the book is tough. So you'd maybe want a collection or you'd want something that is sprawling. You'd Your mind something. is operating the same exact way in which mine is. <laughs> and I had a little time to think about this question. I think a lot of people might say the Bible because it's just like so big. It is a lot to chew on. If it's only two months. Okay. You know, it's you know, amazing. Like six, that. Six, six months. <laughs> Or like an epic, long. yeah, or an epic poem or something mm -hmm. like that. Although that's not necessarily enjoyable to read. So, you know, if you're if it's gonna be that long, the Encyclopedia, like the 1911 Encyclopedia Britannica, which is many books, but sure, you're not gonna necessarily get through it all, and it could be a lot of, it could be a lot of fun. That's an excellent. So th those are my off the cuff, off. Those are answers. excellent off the cuff. I, I mean, it's not an easy question. And of course, uh, many judgments will be rendered based on your, on your answer. <laughs> <questions>. <laughs> not only by yours truly, but the, the wider audience. So with a little bit of a forethought, I, my response would be for the music, I would want Vivaldi's Four Seasons <laughs> as a reminder that you know, three seasons do exist elsewhere in the world. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, I would I would cheat a little bit. I do have a single volume of all of Shakespeare's works. It's it's a big big book, big hefty book, real you know, okay. small print. But I do have a single volume. So again, it's cheating a little bit. It's not I guess one story, but uh, that would be my that would be my choice. <laughs> That's good. Well, it reminds me of the so Freakin had a situation like that imposed on him, and there was a period where he was separated from his family for a bit and he lost all of his books and he had this one book um and i forget the exact title because it's so long but it's basically about the popes in avignon and it's the, this old you know, this papal, papal kind of fracture and he starts reading it and he reads it so many times he's trying to memorize sections of it he's playing games with himself like how many you know how fast can i read it it took like several days to get through and he's only reading it um, and then he starts to obsess about the author of the book and he's obsessed and he's like, what would, you know, and then he starts getting angry at the guy and said, he's losing his mind basically because he's yeah. isolated in the wilderness. And he's like, what would I do to this guy? If I ever met him, would I get in a fight with him? Would I kill him like, whatever. And then later he gets a chance to meet him. He's back in Denmark and he's seated next to the guy at some dinner. And he just had a pleasant conversation with him. I don't even think he brought up the fact that, you know, I was obsessed over you. I was almost going to kill you. <laughs> yeah. Point. And as I was reading that passage, I was uh, eager with anticipation to know exactly what this hulking man would do to this, I'm assuming, diminutive <laughs> author. Writing yeah, academic. Story, writing a book about, yeah. uh, you know, Avignon and the papal nothing. And, and the answer is nothing. nothing. No, he had a perfectly yeah. cordial interaction <laughs> with him. <Yeah. laughs> so it was sort Good of anticlimactic. <laughs> anticlimactic. But again, it's you know, he was in a strange state of, of mental um, 
unease in that in that uh, in that isolation. Uh, so I recently sat down with an interesting figure whose uh, uh, whose final recording I haven't yet posted, but his name was Barry Brown, uh, a man to whom the the nickname the Bionic Bull Rider was, I think, fittingly applied. You mentioned bullfighting; he was a bull rider and. In our conversation, he talked about the cowboy spirit, and that kind of struck with me. It, it struck a kind of a very American chord, and I, it, it's vibrated ever since. Freugen certainly had the explorer's spirit. How would you define that type of spirit? What is its you know chief characteristic? So for Freugen, it was restlessness. Like he always needed, he's like a shark, right? If it stops swimming, then it dies. Um, so he was you know, always going from place to place. He was very curious to see. And that's the second part is his curiosity. He was an autodidact. He was reading a lot. He wanted to see places. He liked meeting people. It, one of the interesting contradictions about him is here's a guy who is pulled to the most isolated places on earth, yet could also be very social. You know, he kind of went back and forth being introvert and extrovert. Um, he liked both. It wasn't like I'm a country guy, not a city guy. He he knew that his image was wrapped up in, you know, his image of being the guy kind of out on the range. Um, but he really was, so he kind of played up to that, um, but he was both. So he had this restlessness and he was just kind of naturally curious. And the third thing, this is kind of a lesson, I guess a lot of people could take is, he's sort of someone who I said, yes. Like if an opportunity came his way, he didn't find an excuse not to do it. It was always like, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do that. So. I think that that is um, part of the explorer spirit. Another part, and you don't see this in Freakin as much, but um, there was a competitiveness with all the other explorers around Freakin. Like we talk about Cook and Perry competing to be the first to achieve something, the first to the North Pole. Um, you know, they were going for glory. You know, and there's lots of different aspects of that glory. Uh, and Freakin too, you know, he he had a couple kind of near firsts or you know great accomplishments. That's something I found interesting about Freakin. He's a bit like the Scotty Pippen of explorers. <laughs> you know, it's like he's he's in the shadow of other explorers almost always, um, and he's living in their shadow. He's not always the main star, but his stories are are really interesting in a lot of ways. More interesting by being that person who's not always getting the credit or not always, you know, in the spotlight because he's struggling a little bit more. Yeah. And before the donning of the wooden peg leg, he probably could have uh, held his own against Pippin uh, with his height <laughs> and his, <laughs> yeah. his athletic prowess. Yeah. You're yeah, a six, five. five. He would have been a good guard. Oh yeah. He would. Yeah. <laughs> today's game. Yeah. I could see it. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, he was completely uninhibited. I mean, with his with with that restlessness and that competitiveness, and you you talk about that early in the work. Uh, all of these explorers and these adventurers, I think, are in some degree motivated by the glory. There's a there's a Greek term. It's thumos. It's this spiritedness um, that is a, a vital driver to let's say. Um, I guess it's commonly associated with that masculine energy to, to go out and to seek and to conquer and, and to obtain honor and glory. And as I was reading your description of him, that, that word continually kind of popped into my mind, that thumos. He, he really exhibited that in a, in a striking way. And I think that's an important 
characteristic that we can derive from him and hopefully implement in some small ways in our daily lives. Of course, we might not be going out to uncharted territories and, and um, establishing colonies or trading outposts, but, um, but I think of ways that we can take, uh, uh, take some of the things that he did uh, and try to refract them and, and implement them in our own life. And I think some of those things, if implemented in moderation, the, the kind of the restlessness, the competitiveness, the, the glory seeking could be good, could be wholesome, could be, could be edifying in a lot of different ways. Maybe your thoughts on that. Yeah. The one takeaway, a big takeaway I got is, so while I was working on this book, you know, the pandemic was raging, a lot of lockdowns were happening and a lot of people were more and more living their lives online. And they're in these digital echo chambers. And I feel like social media is a, is a pretty toxic place. You know, it's like pushing a lot of people to extremes. It otherizes people. Um, you know, you'll see people on the far right looking at people on the left and, you know, creating these kind of, you know, straw men that drag down and people on the far left kind of do the same thing to the people on the right. And it's, you know, I saw that and this is because we're isolated. Like we're not actually connecting with those people where it becomes really apparent like, oh, we actually have a lot of things that are shared. There's maybe a few things we can disagree on, but if we're coming at each other with that foundation of what we share, it's much easier to have those disagreements. You know, social media platforms, especially, you know, sites like Twitter, the only way they're really profitable is they, they have to breed this kind of divisiveness and controversy. And so, you know, during the pandemic, I'm seeing this and it's very angry and rancorous. And I had the pleasure of being able to go back every day and I'm researching and get to go back into this story. And I see someone who doesn't have any of those tools, those platforms. And he was forced to live his life very much in the moment, very much in the present where he's interacting with people, you know, face to face. And it was a reminder to me of the importance of that, um, of really getting out there and getting to know other people. It's usually not as alarming as you think it's going to be. Uh, so that was a big takeaway for me. And I was never a big poster on social media, but would lurk a little bit. There was a period I think you could say I was a little addicted, you know, waking up and you go to it and you're just kind of doom scrolling. And I cured myself of that habit. You know, it, it is like an addiction. It's 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 a cancer, really, on our on our culture. Um, so for me, that was a lesson. I was like, be more present, um, especially with the people you know you're around, your family, daily life. That that was a big takeaway for me. A lesson I could take. And, and Franken was, of course, forced into that. Um, but seeing it through my research, it made me hunger for it. You know, it gave me kind of a nostalgia for that moment, that part of time where things were a little more localized and a little more um, present, personal. So I tried to push some of that back into my life. I know it would be difficult with the exigencies of working as a writer and author, um, you know, having a, a family and having obligations. But have you considered going on any sort of a silent retreat or, or, or doing anything like that in a really deliberately meditative way because of your experience with Freuken? Oh, those do seem lovely. I've never, I've never done one. Um, 
couldn't really afford to do one for an extended amount of time because of obligations and everything else. But uh, I would be curious. I did notice that when I broke myself of social media, really just got off of it cold turkey, I started reading older novels again. And a lot of the novels I was picking up when I was on social media, I tried reading and I realized, oh, I've just gotten through 10 pages of this and I can't tell you a single thing that happened. It breaks your mind. I was Astonishing. distracted. Astonishing. And, and, when, you're, and you're an author. I mean, you, you, you write prodigiously and, and you write wonderfully and it's had that effect on you. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and so then I went back and, and a specific example, uh, Somerset Mom's Ash, and I read the book and I tried reading it a few years ago. And it's one of those books. I was like, I, I just read 10 pages of this. I, I don't even, I can't even tell you what happened. I get off social media and I pick it back up. And then it's this wonderful story. Cause I started wondering about that. I was like, wait, I read these kinds of books when I was much younger and would lose myself in them. would totally get into the story. Like why can't, why is my brain doing that now? kick social media and I might go on it a couple minutes a day, check up a couple things, do a couple quick, you know, but I'm really not on it. And it gave me back the joy of reading and focus. That's what I, that's what I got when I, when I kicked it. That's so delightful to know. Uh, I'm a late comer to social media. And uh, again, I'm Curious, mainly. I, I mean, a word like doom scrolling is is not one I've ever heard, <laughs> and mm -hmm. um, certainly not something um, that I want to, for which I want to develop a habit. And I don't think I will. I hope. Um, so, <laughs> at the, you know, it, it does have its its place though. And for me, you know, as I'm trying to promote guests and to to uh, attract people to the to the little you know channel for for conversation. Uh, it does have its role there, I, uh, you know. So I'm I'm a bit ambivalent about it. I haven't yet reached that point where it's negatively affected my ability to focus on a long work, on a sustained work like yours. I, I just recently finished to give you an example: uh, Bleak House by Charles Dickens, which is extraordinarily mm -hmm. long. <laughs> I think it, excessively long. <laughs> it's a great story. Yeah, I mean, it, and I, I didn't want to read it just to be able to flaunt the fact that I did read it. I mean, it's widely considered as his, you know, his magnum opus, the great work um, of his oeuvre. And, and it is a great work, but I, oh goodness, I mean, it's, it's a tough, long read. And if your attention is in any way compromised by your social media use, you'll never get through it. You, you'll, go no. and you'll never finish that book. You never will. No, uh, that's a perfect example of a kind of book that Social media is directly antagonistic yeah. to the fractured, <laughs> kind of discombobulated, fragmented thinking, yeah. lots of spurts. It's, it's not like, it's not like helping deep focus or anything. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so turning to something that might help with deep focus, I'm not sure personally, um, but you also wrote a book about whiskey, and I plan to read this book. So I want to talk a little bit about. Well, whiskey, bourbon, and, and the, its history in America. So I want to talk about that for a little while because I consider myself the uninitiated and the uninebriated, <laughs> and I have very little familiarity with with whiskey and with you know spirits generally. Although I'm I'm very interested in them. I I think the the process of their fermentation and their development and the, the culture that surrounds them are uh, are are always. Uh, entrancing i think it's it's so so wonderful to to consider 
Um, yeah. Now I do plan to read your book. Uh, years ago, I—I I shouldn't say years. Months ago, I read a book by uh, the professor of uh, politics at Villanova University. It was called uh, "Smashing the Liquor," uh, "Smashing the Liquor Lobby," I think, all about the liquor machine. Yeah, I remember seeing this book. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Smashing yeah. the liquor machine. So I actually had Mark Strat on this on this little channel, and we discussed his work, and I was just fascinated to know the long history of. Uh, mainly the imperial use of or abuse of liquor, <laughs> both domestically and in far-flung colonies in order to, um, well, sort of numb the people and also exploit from them you know, taxes and other sorts of things. So maybe we'll get into that, the, the darker side of, of spirits. But um, can you just give us a brief overview? What what is the difference between whiskey and bourbon and rye and scotch and all these kind of derivative drinks um, to, yeah. again, to the, to, the, to the ignorant folk like myself? Well, so bourbon, rye, whiskey, those are all, or scotch, those are all styles of whiskey. So the same way we've got beer, we've got Pilsner, Stout, you know, they're just different styles of red wine versus white wine. Um, and bourbon is a very American style of whiskey. So is rye. Scotch is obviously, you know, Scotland. Um, you know, they're all made from grains and the grains are cooked and then fermented to make what's essentially a beer and that beer is distilled so that you get the spirit. And scotch is primarily, um, usually malted barley. And then in the U.S., bourbon is at least 51% corn, usually with a little bit of rye mixed in, also a little bit of barley. Uh, rye whiskey is at least 51% rye. It can be 100% rye, um, but it's at least 51%. Right? And there's sometimes a little bit of corn mixed in. And then it's aged in a barrel, a charred you know, barrel. It gets a lot of its flavor, actually, from, from that barrel and... and um, a lot of other things happen once in the world. So that's basically what, what whiskey is. And in my book, Bourbon Empire, I realized that whiskey, especially bourbon, which is kind of the king of American whiskey, it's the one that everyone knows the name. It's got a beautiful name, right? It just rolls off your tongue. You had a story that, similar to the way Fraken represented the 20th century, all of these different aspects of, of America, politics, economics, culture, the story of this nation, you know, in a, in a very big way, could be collapsed down to the smaller scale of this one product, bourbon. So bourbon becomes a lens for examining the nation. And you have, what's interesting about whiskey is that it very much had an effect on the development of this young country. Um, it was involved in colonial politics, you know, you've got the sugar tax and rum, this transition from rum into whiskey during the revolution. And then you, very shortly after the revolution, you have the whiskey rebellion, which as the way I frame it in the book, was very much a clash between two competing visions of how an economy should be, which has become the central conflict in America when we talk about business. You've got Hamilton's vi vision which draws on the philosophies of people like David Hume, who argue that more control should be in the hands of the few, you know, a few, you know, very specialized people, where, you know, compared to Jefferson's vision, which is based on John Locke and laissez-faire you know, economics, where a lot of thousand flowers bloom, and he was more of a champion of the smaller human farmer. So, you know, 
big centralized, you know, Wall Street kind of vision with with Hamilton, and then this small business kind of ideal Jefferson, and that comes, you know, that erupts to the surface with the Whiskey Rebellion, um, which threatened to break the united unity of the young United States, and then you've got this spirit developing and all these commercial advancements, evolutionary spirits, science and technology comes into play, so you get this story of industry and innovation, and then you get a story of reform, you know, the Gilded Age, most corrupt periods of history in the U.S. And it was during that time where Americans, in response to all that corruption, you see the Pure Food and Drug Act, you see all these you know, labeling regulations for bourbon, which really help protect it, you know, trademark protection. So it's a great business story, as well as a story of technology. And then you get this morality story and prohibition. Um, where there's a lot of social problems that have resulted from alcohol and there's a reaction to that, a backlash, which, you know, I can certainly understand and appreciate, um, but it ends up with this policy prohibition, which is a failed, but it didn't work. Um, it was never really supported by a majority of Americans anyway. America realizes the error of its ways, and it is a story of, you know, the moral arc of that universe is bending towards justice and Prohibition is repealed in 1933. And then after that, it becomes a story of more consolidation, which echoes broader storylines in American business. Um, and then you get a story of fads and fashion and trends. And, uh, you know, so it really parallels the story. And as the nation is evolving, the spirit itself is changing and evolving. And what we drink in our glass today is very different than what people are drinking on the frontier but we still like to use that image of the frontier to sell it. And it gets back to nostalgia and ideals. So that's what my book was, was this narrative of the story of American whiskey. And you can really see America through it. So that's what I was, what I was trying to do, but I also wanted to inject a little bit of foodieism in there too. So, you know, my editor in the book was like, you know, if people are reading about a product like this, they also want to know what to buy, like what's good, what's bad, you know, what, what are some guidelines I want to learn about it in a, in a food way, a culinary way. So I kind of inject, sometimes it's a little clumsy in my writing, I think, but I inject uh, lessons about modern brands in there and how the history reflects on them. Um, Cause there's actually a lot of contrarian elements of the story where for instance, some of the biggest corporations making whiskey today, that's not, that's never a romantic image, a giant corporation, but whiskey is an industrial product just as much it is an agrarian agricultural product. Um, and the scale, the tools that these big distillers have actually help them improve their whiskeys, make a very, very high quality product while bringing the cost down. So, you know, that kind of doesn't always jive with our, our modern foodie culture. You know, when you think of cheese or something like that, you know, doing it on a smaller scale, a little more hands-on, a little more rustic uh, with whiskey, you get this environment where you know chemical engineers are brought in because they help improve the product and they're using a lot of computers technology things to actually improve it you know and it's like well, why would we criticize a whiskey maker for doing it we wouldn't criticize a heart surgeon for using those kinds of tools to do his or her job better and so i like to get into that in the book too how it's nuanced and there's a lot of um you know context that's important and it ends up becoming a model for our life it's like you don't want a vision of that industry that's purely hamiltonian that's a little boring it's a little bit sterile it makes an excellent product but there's a lot of variety and there's a lot of independence it's just a few large large companies dominating 
you don't want a vision of that that's pure Jeffersonian either. It's too much chaos, anarchy, you know, you want a balance of the two, like, you know, and it's finding that balance. And that's the constant debate we're having in America. And that's the debate that, you know, you can see it on a smaller scale within whiskey. It, it, it transfers to the economy and our culture at large. You captured that so beautifully, concisely and eloquently. I could not agree more. And I've always felt this. It, there's a tendency, I think, for me and maybe some like me to kind of simplify things, but I think at the heart of our national unrest, and I, I don't mean that disparagingly, you know, every nation has a certain unrestlessness, <laughs> but I think at the heart of ours is that, is that argument, is that civil argument between Hamilton and Jefferson. And of course, these were two fiercely competitive individuals, brilliant individuals um, by whom this country has been shaped for forever, forevermore. Uh, so it's an important to study them, and I think it's fascinating that you use the lens of whiskey to do so. Uh, <laughs> I mean, Hamilton was, and I can't wait to read your book, and I'm sure this is all explained, but, but Hamilton was treasury of the secretary. He was looking for ways to, again, consolidate the state's debt. We all know that, and bring it into the yeah. federal government, and then he was looking at ways to raise revenue. But at that time, there was no income tax. You know, thankfully, there, whiskey tax. Yeah, right, right. And there was there were excises, um, but any other form of taxation was well, it wasn't legal. The Congress would have to pass the law. I mean, they were in charge yeah. of the, the purse strings. So well, yeah, they, they they picked a they picked a, something that I suppose would would be deemed unobject. Whose taxation I think they thought would be unobjectionable. But of yeah. course, they miscalculated, and it's a good lesson to to all governments who think that you know you can implement certain uh, economic policies with no detrimental effects. But of course, that was not the case. They thought, okay, it's a sin tax, essentially a tax on luxury, a luxury right. tax, yeah. right? A luxury well, tax. Which, but to someone who's a teetotaler, yeah, that sounds perfectly rational. Let's tax yeah. cigars or cigarettes or whiskey. But like you say, whiskey was so integral in in the frontier in western pennsylvania where they would use their excess grains to create this local product they would they would barter with it they would of course consume it but they would also use it as a form of economic stimulation and right jeff you have washington on horseback arriving and <laughs> yeah putting you tax it as a as a luxury tax, the, the frontier is saying, you're taxing our income. Like we're using this for trade because we can't get currency out here. So it becomes, a, it's a very different thing. And it also is like, it's part of our way of life. So it is, it's like, well, you know, hold on a second. And they were taxed unfairly according to different tax codes in the frontier as opposed to the East Coast. And so you can see where it erupts. And then there's this great class issue over it where Hamilton and then also George Washington, who was actually the nation's largest distiller. Yes, um, yes, with rye. If you ever get the opportunity to visit Mount Vernon, you'll you'll learn this. It's, it's amazing. You know, his his estate was largely unprofitable, but the one thing that he did try his hand at later, and with some success, was was uh, the the raising of of alcohol, <laughs> whiskey. Yeah. And what's was interesting to me is, you know, Washington wasn't a big drinker. You know, he was very moderate. And what he did drink was, you know, let him Madeira, you know, imported wines. And a lot of, and, and so was Jefferson, even though Jefferson was a champion of small unit farmers, big wine guy, and he kind of hated whiskey. Hamilton certainly hated whiskey. 
And the Whiskey Rebellion was about more than just whiskey. It was about ownership and control going to these Eastern or East Coast based financiers. So they're really losing independence and control as you still see that today, I think, you know, in, in all these parts of the country. And they're acting against that um, with, with good cause. You know, the balance doesn't seem to be quite struck. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you, know, you see this class over, and, and Hamilton actually called the Whiskey Rebellion the Whiskey. He named it Whiskey because he wanted to place the emphasis on this kind of lowbrow, blue collar object where it's like, oh, it's just whiskey. It's, it's all about this, this vice, you know, as you were calling it before. It really was about much more than that, but he called it Whiskey. And there's a, that's super important. You know, he was using class to disparage this group of people. Um, so you can sense the propagandistic element in that, the way in which yeah. it's labeled. It's the whiskey yeah. rebellion or the whiskey insurrection. Yeah, he's rolling his eyes. I said, the whiskey rebellion. It's like, it's about more than whiskey, but whiskey is a big part of it. What I thought was fascinating is then when the whiskey tax was brought back after the Civil War to pay, because Jefferson, once he was elected president, does away with the whiskey tax, which provides an environment where whiskey then was allowed to flourish. And you had a lot of producers who experimented. You see a lot more specialization coming in the industry where people really learned they started leading into the culinary side of it, making something that tasted really good and was safer and, and, and there was a lot of craft involved. Civil War, the tax goes back in place to pay for this horribly expensive war. And now all of a sudden you've got a tax that for the next 40, 30 years for, or so is responsible for a third to almost half of all of the federal government's income. Oh my goodness! I am astonished. I for for yeah. one, I didn't I didn't realize that the tax was reintroduced, and I was going yeah. to ask you during the the first stage of its implementation how lucrative it was. So so tell me before I before we get into that post bellum uh, period, how lucrative was it in the in its first implementation? Um, so after the whiskey rebellion. You know, it, it, it raised money. I mean, I don't know the exact numbers. Um, it was poorly enforced after the whiskey rebellion. Yeah. It still stood in place for a few years, but people kind of ignored it. And a lot of cases, you know, especially farmers out on, on the frontier, it was largely ignored the tax collectors who had been tarred and feathered in the lead up to the whiskey rebellion. So it kind of muddled along until Jefferson's elected in 1800. And then he just, he does away with it. Um, and then... People could then bring it out into the open. The economy wasn't driven underground. You see that when the tax is re-implemented and after the Civil War, you start getting the moonshining wars and it goes back underground and the product suffers and people try to cut corners to avoid the tax. And the tax was very controversial because it also fed into political corruption. So Ulysses Grant, under his presidency, there's the whiskey ring scandal and his private secretary, which we would today call chief of staff, a man named Orville Babcock. Grant, it seems, you know, according to most historians, he really was largely unaware, which is one of the big criticisms of Grant. Um, brilliant general, um, decent man, but didn't always know what was going on in his administration. And Orville Babcock was using funds that had been siphoned off from the whiskey tax to bury political opponents and fund political corruption, that sort of thing. And of course, when this came to light, the public hated it. It made politics. So it gave whiskey a really bad reputation because it was fueling political corruption quite 
quite literally. It is, it is also used as fuel. Um, it may have also fueled so. uh, Grant on the battlefield. He's uh, often yeah. associated with being a rather bibulous fellow. I, I think probably yeah. misrepresented in a lot of ways. But uh, was that his drink of choice? Do you know? Um, so there's a funny story about um, Grant and Lincoln and there was an emerging brand, a, a guy named James Crow um, was making very, very good whiskey. He helped revolutionize whiskey making. He was a chemist and a physician and really studied how whiskey was made. And I believe it was, so Lincoln asked, you know, people were complaining that Grant was a drunk and you know, he drank old crow and there's a story supposedly that when they're complaining to Lincoln about Grant being drunk, Lincoln was like, well, what's he drink? And they told him, he was like, well, send a case of it to my other generals. <laughs> yes, Grant, I mean, Grant was a fantastic general. I've heard that story before. And yes, he, he was a great strategist and, and uh, an active general, which, which Lincoln needed more than anything else. Um, and I, I, always I always find this funny as well. Uh, something about which Mark Shratt and I talked. Whiskey back then, like you said, was was seen as sort of the poor man's drink, right? And today, you know, you can fetch bottles that are in excess of you know, hundreds of dollars. And, yeah. it's, you know, there are some, you know, not sommeliers, I don't know what they would be called for whiskey, but connoisseurs and, and people who take this process and this drink very, very seriously. Yeah. Uh, to that point, I... I come to understand that the cask is king. So in what ways does the casking or the barreling process influence the, the final product? So a lot of distillers estimate that the cask, you know, the barrel is responsible for 60 to 80% of the final product's flavor. So when you distill the spirit, when you take the grains and you cook them, and then you have essentially a beer and you distill it, you have a very clear liquid that's, you know, some people call it new make, especially in Scotland, in the US call it white dog. And if you taste that, it's very grainy, um, it could be pretty pungent. I mean, it's got a very distinct flavor and it tastes wildly different after it ages in the barrel for a while, you know, and it can age in the barrel for just a couple of years, you can go up to 20, you know, whatever. But as it sits in the barrel, so the barrels are usually made of, of oak, white oak, um, and they are toasted and charred as they're being made. What that does is it caramelizes some of the sugars in the wood. And there are other chemicals in the wood, you know, vanillin and all kinds of things that add all the flavors that you're going to get in whiskey, like the vanilla and the cinnamon and you know, whatever. And then that layer of char, and people have known since Roman times that liquids aged in char barrels, you know, tasted fresher. So as the whiskey is sitting there in the barrel, it's seeping through the charcoal, which is helping remove you know, certain things. And it seeps into the wood where then it pulls out the sugars. And as the seasons change and the temperature changes, the whiskey is kind of going in and it's kind of going out. At the same time, you have all these other chemical processes that are happening, like esterification and oxidation. You know, a little bit of air will get into the barrel. A little bit of the spirits will evaporate. You know, and it depends where the barrel's sitting in the warehouse. If it's a very hot section of the warehouse, you know, you'll lose a good 5% a year so that after 10 years of aging, you might only, you know, have half or even less of the liquid that you put into the barrel. 
Um, if it's in a cooler part of the warehouse, the process is much more mellow and, and the aging happens kind of slower rate. So you got all these different things, you know, happening. So when it comes time to finally dump the barrel, you've, the liquid is brown because it's absorbed all those sugars and tannins and things from the wood. But you've also had a softening effect, the esterification and the oxidation, all these other things. A lot of people sometimes think that it's just about extraction or we're just getting these flavors from the wood, but it's like these other things have to happen too. And those other things happen um, according to different rates and variables. So you'll get a lot of times in the whiskey world, you know, make a bunch of new make, which all tastes identical and you'll put it in barrels and you'll put these barrels all over a warehouse and different parts of the warehouse have different temperatures and you pull them all after seven years and you'll taste all those barrels individually and they can taste very different from each other. Different things have happened. So the barrel has this almost kind of a magic, magic effect. And what whiskey makers do is that they have brand consistency is they're oftentimes then vatting, but they're dumping together to reach a very consistent flavor profile for the product. Or they can put out a thing called a single barrel, which is like a barrel just stand out and be very unique. And, uh, you know, they'll sell it individually. Um, so that's in a nutshell, how that process works. Oh, just with erudition, you described that process and, and it's, it's easily understood by someone like me. And I think it harks back to that balance that you noted that between the artistic component and the scientific component, it's, it's just amazing to me. Are there any whiskey makers that have tried to replicate the whiskey that might've been produced uh, on our early Allegheny frontier in Western, what was then Western America. Do you know of any, um, you know, extant recipes? I'm sure they exist from, you know, yeah. a, an 18th century yeoman farmer. And have have you ever tried any uh, whiskeys like that? Yeah. Um, so the recipes, as far as the, the mash bills, because like what portion of the recipe is what grains, are still largely similar, you know, a lot of bourbons are 75% corn and then maybe 5% barley because malted barley helps introduce an enzyme into the process that helps the fermentation process. And the rest is rye and the rye is a lot more spicy and, and vegetal and it kind of helps offset the sweetness of the corn. So the broad recipes are still very similar. Now on the frontier, you know, you might have had a sweet mash process where you're letting a wild yeast strain um, take over and whiskey, but that can sometimes go south pretty fast. So something called the sour mash process then was introduced where you're taking a little bit of the spent mash that already been fermented, which had a higher acid content, which helped, helped with the um, fermentation, but also helped with consistency. Um, you know, on the frontier, you're more likely to encounter people doing something called direct fire, you know, stills. Um, maybe you had green malting. Uh, a friend of mine has a distillery in upstate New York called Copper Sea, where he's kind of brought back a lot of these processes that were really lost over time just because they weren't always the most efficient. Um, you know, they were a little more expensive. Um, so they were given up, not because they didn't produce great whiskey, though. They, they really did. And so at Copper Sea, they brought back a lot of those. So if you seek out those bottles... Uh, you can taste something that might not necessarily taste exactly like it did on the frontier. It's probably it's a lot better. Um, but he's using processes like they would have at a much smaller scale. So with the craft whiskey movement, uh, you can find a lot more 
of that. Um, you can find people experimenting in that way. And even the big, the big companies though, like Buffalo Trace, uh, they have an experimental program, you know, Barrel Warehouse X, where they experiment with different types of woods. And of course, none of that was really, it wasn't always being done on the frontier either. Um, but they're just trying to find stuff that works well and is really cool. And so, yeah, there's a lot more of that going on on whiskey these days. It must have been an, uh, an enjoyable experience as you wrote this book and uh, were forced by the, uh, the necessities of the project to try all these different whiskeys and really uh, appreciate them. Though I assume based on your, your expertise that this fondness for whiskey probably preceded the book that you wrote. So, so tell me, what is the origin of your fondness for this libation? Yeah, I was never actually a big drinker um, when I was younger and I was in the military after college and you know there'd be social evenings on the base you know friday after work yeah and i noticed i was in the air force a lot of uh folks had done time in germany you know and basically they were into beer and you just want to have something in your hand and i there's something attractive about american whiskey because not a lot of people were drinking it back then it had quite gone through the renaissance it's gone through in recent years so it was kind of unique. It was something that was my own. I felt like it was my own. And I just liked the flavor. And it was, I was also cheap. And it was like, at that point, a really good deal. So that's what initially drew me into it. And then I have a tendency when I get into something, I really get into it. And I obsess about it. I geek about it. I'm writing a book about it. Um, so I got into it the way you know, some people get into wine. I wasn't drinking that much of it, but I was paying attention to what I drank. I get, got curious about the process. I started I read about it. I was reading books. But the only books available back then were guides, like tasting guides. Here's how it's made, and then you know, make notes. And it was very much the culinary part. But they all had little sections in the beginning that would talk about the history, just a few pages. And they would talk about how wild the story was. And I was like, yeah, this does sound wild, but I want more about that. So that's yeah. kind of where my book then came from. Yeah, yeah. And at so this time, I... of course, we didn't have YouTube channels entirely dedicated to, to this drink as we do now. Not quite yet. Yeah. I mean, it was, the internet was certainly around and you could, you could read yeah. about it. So, you know, there's a lot of great resources there and chat groups and stuff where you, where you would learn more and you could really go down the rabbit holes, but I wanted to put all that together into a book that had widely popular appeal. It was one of these popular histories and, you know, one of the great, one of the nicer compliments, cause it's my first book. And so I have some issues with how it's written. Like I wish I could have written it better and all those, it's my best-selling book so far popular subject um is a lot of people are like you know i don't drink but i really like this book because it uses this really interesting topic to explore something much bigger so it's always nice to hear that you know that it's not just whiskey geeks that are reading the book but people just interested in history oh absolutely and that would i would number myself among those people <laughs> so i have to ask what is your favorite song in which whiskey uh, features prominently? Ooh, I'd have to say uh, Whiskey River by Willie Nelson. Willie Nelson is one of my favorites. That was the first dance at my wedding with my, my wife. Not Whiskey River, but a Willie Nelson song. Um, I think Willie is an icon and a true American treasure, and that's an awesome song. There's a lot of good whiskey songs, by the way. I, I like that selection. I like that a lot. Yeah. So mine would be Tennessee Whiskey by Chris uh, Stapleton. Stapleton, great song. That would be my number, I would, yeah. And then I, I reached out to my dad and he's never never lacking in a good 
good response for uh, for uh, you know any of these types of questions. He said, "Whiskey in the Jar" by Thin Lizzy, and I I totally neglected that song. If you've never heard it, excellent from an Irish band, of course, excellent song. So those would be my two choices, and I'll add the the Willie Nelson to to the whiskey song list. <laughs> I love that. Great, song. great choice. That, that, that Chris Stapleton song is a wonderful song. Sturgill Simpson, I think, occasionally will bring up whiskey. It feels like country music. Um, Tense I'm a big country music fan. I actually, side story, I was fortunate enough, I got to have dinner once with George Strait and his wife. Um, and I'm a big fan of uh -huh. George Strait. And George Strait owns a tequila brand, part owner of Codiga. And he is friends with the people who are making it, and so he invested in it. And the dinner says I'd written a whiskey book and they're promoting that brand. And I ended up getting seated with, with George Strait. And so I asked him a question I asked distillers. I was like, you know, I would always ask him, instead of comparing your product and, you know, describing it in terms of flavor notes, so cinnamon and this and that, I would always ask him to use music because it kind of gets him thinking a little differently, a little more creatively. And, you can sometimes get to the spirit or the soul of, of a drink by thinking of it in those terms. And I'm like, I, and I told this to George Strait, and I was like, so compare your drink, your tequila, to a musician, because you're a musician. I just want to hear what you would. And he looks at me, and he just starts laughing, and he's like, oh, man, okay, I have to, I have to think about this. I'm like, take, take your time. And so, you know, I, I was chatting with his wife. And he's just sitting, he's sitting there thinking about it, thinking about it. And then he comes back with this fantastic answer. And he goes, okay, I got an answer for you. And I'm like, okay. And he goes, Roy Acuff. And that's, that's a deep cut name. That's not a name a lot of country music fans know. You know, he, he's from, he's, I think he's even before like Tennessee earning Ford. He's way, you know, kind of back in the forties. And, um, I kind of laugh and I'm like, oh, that, that's great. And he goes, Rayakov, because you know, his music's not for everyone. But the people that like it really like it. Huh. I'm like, oh, perfect answer. Perfect wow. answer. Yeah, wow. George Strait is a uh it's a real storyteller, he's a real he's poet. A philosopher as well. I didn't realize Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, his first two albums, especially, it's like each one of those songs is a little story. Um, so much fun. Huh. Maybe someone uh, about whom you will write in a biography. Oh, I don't know about that. That would be a fun one, though, right? Just to, to hang out, to to drink whiskey to, or tequila. I'm sorry, tequila. And maybe a little yeah. together and and to interview him uh, and and explore his life. What an interesting figure, and what a what a great answer. Now, on that point, you sort of disclose to us how you go about your writing process but you've had such a diverse array of interests from whiskey to cartoons and animations to peter freuken um i don't know to what do you attribute your your curiosity and how does that lead you to to know that this is a, a fertile subject to develop into a full-fledged book for me, it always comes down to I'll, I'll get interested in something and then I'll think, oh, this is interesting. I want to read more about it. I want to read a book. And then I fail to find a book that's exactly what I wanted 
to read, you know, it's something that is, you know, doesn't always go in the weeds. That's a little bit more, you know, takes a 10,000 foot view, not a 30,000 foot view, but not a 1000 foot view, you know, because with all these topics, especially whiskey, especially cartoons, you know, you'll have a kind of person who's a, a very devoted enthusiast. And sometimes they can sometimes be a little wary of, of my books because it's like it doesn't go down all the rabbit holes and all the arguments that, you know, people who are really nerdy about a topic. I say that with love, nerdy. But a lot of times they want to play king of the hill. Like I know more than you do. And it's just about this very obscure knowledge. And that's just losing readers like left and right. And I'm like, you want to take these topics that you realize are niche, but they do have broad appeal because they touch on larger universal themes. And so let's bring it in that form to hopefully a bigger audience. And, you know, with animation, there are some wonderful books on animation, on the history of it, but they all tend to be a little more um, like reference books or um, a little more niche. They're taught in classrooms. They converge on academic. I didn't really find a book that had brought out the story. And I realized like it's such a fascinating topic, the body world of old cartoons, which really are nothing like what we think of cartoons today. You know, the early animators, including Walt Disney, you know, Chuck Jones and Warner Bros. Looney Tunes, um, you know, the guys at UPA and, you know, Felix, Felix the Cat, like, and especially the Fleischers, you know, did Popeye and Betty Boop. They really had a lot more. They Their souls are much more in line with what we think of today as stand-up comics. People like, you know, Dave Chappelle or Joan Rivers, you know, icons like that. You know, they were pressing against polite society's conventions and, you know, they were speaking truth to power in their way and they were really funny and they could be dirty and it was, you know, politically incorrect, but not just for the sake of, you know, upsetting people, but because there was some kind of truth lodged in there somewhere that, that people, you know, it was maybe an uncomfortable truth that people kind of want to look away from. And so, I saw that connection and the spirit between those two different kinds of people. And I wanted to show that early world, the first 50 years of animation that way. And also you got the rise and fall of these studios that were operating in the old Hollywood system. Um, it's such an American story. It's a business story, but it's also a story of creativity of artists, you know, um, but there's a conflict with business, you know, like they're trying to earn a living, you know, making their art. So it was a really cool story that way, but there wasn't a book that uh, showed it that way. So that's when I, that's when I knew like, oh, okay, this could be a book. So yeah. I pitched it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And and no small amount of subtlety, I would think, uh, required of these early animators and cartoonists because I'm, I'm sure back in that age, uh, there were probably some censorship guidelines to which they had to adhere or boundaries <laughs> in which they had to operate. So which often makes for great satire. I mean, those, those are times when usually the, the witticisms and the intellect can really flourish in the, in the creation of this art. Now, how difficult or how easy is it to, to sell an idea like that to a publisher? It depends. A lot of times it's about finding an editor within a publisher that also shares the interests. Like there are plenty, you know, a little secret about the, uh, publishing world is that they are honestly like sometimes they do know what they're doing and they've got a great sense and a lot of times they have got no clue they have no idea and people really need to know that um i think of it as you know when you're going into a bookstore and you see the center table 
and you look at all these titles, like these are all books that have managed to make it through the gauntlet. They've been pitched, they've been accepted. You know, they're kind of this sort of cream on the top. You know, they've all made it through the gate. And you look at most of them and you're probably like, I, I couldn't care less. I don't want to read this book. And you realize like different people have different tastes and it can be very particular. So when you're pitching a book, you really hope that there's an editor who also has an interest because even though there might be an audience for a book, the big question for the publisher is, is there an audience for this and can we reach them? And a big problem right now for publishing, especially for history and, and cultural histories like I write, is the audience exists. I mean, these books were selling, you know, history books were selling tremendous amounts just five, 10 years ago. Right now, history is one of the categories that's truly under fire. It's, it's just not selling. Big authors are coming out with these books and they're really not selling. I think the audience exists, but the publishing industry, because a lot of technological changes, is now failing to reach them. Uh, the publishing industry doesn't really market on its own. It relies on review coverage. But, you know, we've all heard stories of news deserts. You know, as newspapers shutter, you get outlets like mid-sized regional papers like the Chicago Tribune or the Denver Post-Gazette, a lot of papers like that, you know, don't have book reviewers anymore. So the word's just not getting out. Um, they're not reaching audiences and more and more people are online. And just the culture of online, it's fast and furious. It's easy to lose stuff in the rush. There's just too much noise. So I, all the time now I'm seeing books, I'm hearing about books years after they've come out. And I'm like, why didn't I hear about this when it came out? It sounds like a great title. Um, so we're in a new ecosystem where the kind of books that are selling, you're seeing a lot of celebrity memoirs, not to knock them, but I, I think that a celebrity's name just cuts to the noise. Uh, those books didn't sell 10 years ago. They just weren't selling. Um, so and now there's it's not a, a, not a copy of, uh, Prince Harry's memoir to be found. Yeah, that's its own, that's its own thing kind of in its own, own universe. I like to read a lot of British press and it's fun to see how the Brits just like, oh, I love it. Yeah. It's got, got those two. Yeah. You know, cause yeah. it's just like, I just, you know, whatever they, they're doing their thing, but sometimes it's just, uh, it's just goofy. Yeah. And then, and then to turn on the uh, South park and uh, speaking of animation, yeah, yeah. watch South park satirize them and tear them apart. I have, <laughs> so, I have yeah. yeah. I have respect for them in ways and it's like you feel for them in ways and other ways you you totally don't and it's just like yeah okay, most whatever. of my most of my respect yeah. is gone yeah as humans yeah I <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 most yeah. of it has has whittled away <laughs> so that's it's interesting that's great to have great to, yeah south park's amazing and uh, yeah. again continuing on a long line of uh, politically incorrect cartoons that have been just absolutely south amazing. park picks up the gauntlet in a lot of ways that so cartoons i write in the book after television immediately became a kid's thing they're never a kid's thing before they were in theaters you know dark theaters adults watched them they were very and adult. I, read the, I read the summary of your book and i was astonished to know that it makes perfect sense though it was originally directed toward adult audiences these cartoons yeah. were and today we it's just kinda... simply associate them with saturday morning kind of uh, quirky little little shows like yeah. you know your but your Looney Tunes, but no, but back then it was, it was a totally different audience. And my book gets into that where it's like, well, suddenly they're playing in living rooms now, and the revenue is it from a ticket, like it was in the theater. It's coming from advertisers. They want to have a say. Uh, televisions, television stations are like, well, we've got the Saturday morning time slot. No one's watching TV. What do we do? And it was like, well, it could be a surrogate babysitter for parents, which is 
so then suddenly they've got a demand for new cartoons, but they had to be very young, child-appropriate advertisers, had to say, and so it became very milk toast very fast. And you had a few outliers like um, Rocky and Bullwinkle, which could be very sophisticated and funny. The South Park definitely has more in line with that older tradition of, you know, satire and being funny. And I, uh, yeah, it's a it's a show, and it's amazing to me how it stayed fresh now for over twenty years. I mean, it's it's evergreen. It's still it still it still hits hard. You watch the older it's episodes. It's evergreen. I mean, it, this yeah. is a it's a timeless, immortal show. And and uh, you know, what what is it? Trey Stone and and Matt Parker are the the names of the creators. I mean, they're absolutely genius. And the I yeah. so appreciate the rapidity with which they're able to absorb whatever's happening, usually politically or culturally, and and to integrate that into their episodes you know, that were released yeah. weekly. Um, and also to, to predict what will happen. I mean, they were satirizing the, the trans movement years ago, <laughs> you know, before it was so, um, I don't know, widely popular or visible, let's say, uh, as it is today. And, you know, they were talking about Mr. Garrison transition and all sorts of, you know, other characters. I think at one point, Kyle transitions into a, you know, a tall, african-american basketball players you know they, they're so ahead of their time and again for that reason i think they're they're a timeless they like, duo they like to step on those third rail topics oh yeah which yeah. is what we need, we need I, I, haven't see, I haven't seen i haven't seen it recently i've only seen a couple episodes recently i need to watch more i i guess you know it's like you know, i used to watch yeah, religiously think- and I think when it transitioned to Hulu or to wherever, whatever platform on which it's now hosted, I also I didn't lose interest, but I just wasn't willing to you know pay the to, for the subscription fee. So okay. I, I I too have not watched it for quite some time, um, but I hear the reviews and I know that it's just as as sharp and timely as as ever. Yeah, uh, I want to ask you, and maybe we can end on this because you've been extremely generous with your time. I've, again, you have so many different interests that we could pursue uh, and talk about at some length. And uh, we'd be here all day. We could not exhaust them. But I did recently visit the house of Ernest Hemingway, of whom you may or may not be a fan. I, I went to Key West. I'm a fan. And, uh, yeah. Okay. So I went to Key West. I know he he's sort of a lightning rod. Some people really, really enjoy his work, the austerity of it. Some people are, are not so inclined to, uh, to enjoy it. But I was much taken by his writing process. The tour guide described it in some detail, and I was able to walk over to his study. It was detached from the main house, which is a, a beautiful house, uh, kind of financed by his the, the, the uncle of his second wife. And he would sit down in this steamy but beautiful and tropical little study, on which, ant, you know, heads of antelope were mounted, and and uh, you know, it kind of re- was reminiscent of that that room in the Explorers Club that, that you visited with your friend. Uh, I was reminded of that as I was visiting, uh, you, know, um, you know, bear furs on the wall and all sorts of interesting paraphernalia there lying around. He wrote from six in the morning till 12 at noon and then went upon his merry way of either it was drinking at Sloppy Joe's or, or you know, riding the, the boat and, and fishing. He tried to produce about 500 to 700 words. And I think 70% of his literary output was, was during those very productive years in the 1930s. So 
what is your process like as a, as a working writer? I mean, you're contributing to articles of which I made mention in the introduction. You're, you're, I'm sure you have an idea for a, a new book now. You've, you've written three in the past. What is your daily process like as a writer? Do you, um, you know, get yourself isolated in a certain setting? Do you drink a certain stimulating beverage or perhaps a whiskey of your choosing? Not, How do you not whiskey while I'm working. <laughs> yeah, so I, you know, it, it is, you gotta be pretty disciplined. I have a schedule, you know, it's pretty nine to five. Um, you know, I, I find my brain sharper in the morning, so I like to guard morning time. Um, and I'll go a lot, you know, I hear about all these writers who, you know, we're going three or four hours a day. And that, that's really about how much time you have to be truly productive. So I'll try to get all the writing done I can. And then I'll switch gears to research and do things that just take a different part of your brain. So it's fresh. So if you can go back and forth. So that way I can ring a few more hours out of the day. And that's my process. And then there's times too where you'll just wake up really, really early, maybe even four and get up and you can get a lot done. Um, you know, before I had a kid, I would work in the morning and then sometimes just kick off for the afternoon because my brain would be mush. And then I'd work again in the evening because I would get my brain back and it gets sharp again. Um, with a kid now, I've got to be much more organized in the time because um, you've got bedtime and all that kind of stuff and you want to spend time, time with him. And so that changes it. So it's much more nine to five now. And I, I try to stay very focused and, um, you know, just organize my day and, and stay on it. I'll set goals, you know, like let's finish this today and make sure you get at least this done and then work intensely until it's done. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, lessons to be learned from a professional writer and, and yeah. good ones. Um, so your eclectic oeuvre, and I'll end with this, this question, your eclectic oeuvre, Oh, it thus far includes books on cartoons, as we mentioned, whiskey and the inimitable Peter Freuken. To what subject will you dedicate your next book? Where are your interests leading you? That's a good question. I've got a few, which I'm going to keep to myself for now. Um, Broadly speaking, in, in what realm are you? Some other explorer stories or some U.S. history stories. Um, I've got some old movie history stories, you know, like there's that section of Wanderlust, which is about the making of, and I love those books. I'm a big fan of old movies. I love those books that are, you know, like um, Goodbye Chinatown, um, you know, about the making of, or The Long Goodbye, or yeah, whatever it's called, you know, about the Chinatown by Sam Lawson, those kind of books. I've got a few ideas like that. Um, so that's kind of where I'm, I'm thinking right now, or perhaps a novel. Ah, so yeah. these ideas are fermenting, not unlike yeah. the whiskey in its casks. Hopefully it doesn't take 20 years, uh, <laughs> yeah. the way some of these great uh, distilled beverages do. Fascinating. So we're obviously going to keep tabs on you and we'll, we'll revisit you. your work. And of course, I encourage everyone to do as I did and pick yourself up a copy of Wanderlust, if only for the jacket. Uh, of course, the, yeah. the literary content is spectacular. It's a great reading experience. Uh, I think you'll thoroughly enjoy it on the beach, especially. It's just one of those you can get kind of lost in, of course, while you're baking in the sun in uh, California or Florida or wherever you are. Yeah. You'll be transported to a new place <laughs> in Greenland and, and inside some igloo. Um, and one more thing I wanted to say, and that's right. 
just in reference to our Hamilton Jefferson point made a little bit earlier, I, I was reminded by a, a friend of mine, a physician friend of mine, that his favorite bourbon is Jefferson bourbon. And I don't think there's a Hamilton uh, spirit. So maybe that speaks to the, the victor in that competition between Jefferson and Hamilton. I don't know what the political... I make that, I make that joke in the book. Oh, yeah. do you? <laughs> like Jefferson, I was like, Hamilton's system really did become the system. It is much more centralized and consolidated, mm -hmm. but no one wants to use that image to sell it. They want to use Jefferson and there's a, a Jefferson's bourbon. Yeah. Um, named after him. I, I, I interviewed them while I was, when I was writing the book. So it's, it's a, it's a funny kind of uh, ironic thing, right? It most certainly is. So that the maybe guy whose philosophy did end up winning out doesn't have a bottle dedicated to him. And Jefferson the guy. On, on one front, perhaps the more important yeah. front, which is the libation. Yeah. And of course, Hamilton, I think, for better or worse, has mostly won out on the political economic front. Uh, yeah. So you mentioned that your, your presence on social media is scant <laughs> yeah. is there a is there a site to which people can go in order to follow web... you or to keep up with you yeah i've got a website um this is my name readmentbuehler.com i do have a twitter handle as i said I'll check up on it you know and i'm on instagram once again it's just my name um so those are those are places and you can follow me on like you know amazon i guess you can follow an author for other books of course so. of course and these are all links uh that I'll include in the show notes below. Uh, and before we part formally, is there any last message with which you'd like to leave me and uh, our listeners? It's just that message that I was left with at the end of Wanderlust, where, you know, the, my big takeaway was seeing, you know, while during the pandemic, we were all getting so divided because we were on social media and this ties back to the social media thing. And you see it really in a lot of ways. It is the root, I think, of a fair amount of problems in this country, the way we're absorbing problems, the proportionality we're assigning to different issues. Like you just wonder half the time, why are we even arguing about some of this stuff? Um, and I really longed from what Franken had, just that presence every day and that focus on the people immediately around him. So I, I close Wanderlust with that, you know, in the epilogue. And I think for me, that, that that's the takeaway I took. So I found it helpful. So maybe other people will find it helpful too. I most certainly think they will. And that's, that's an idea on which I'm insistent. It's being present, it's being mindful uh, and being kind of sympathetic to, to those around you and, and, and to you know, living in this world uh, together. So Reed, you've been immensely generous with your time. Thank you so very much. Um, again, I'll include links to all of your works in the show notes and I encourage, very strongly encourage everybody to, to get a copy. Again, perfect read for the beach this year is Wanderlust. <laughs> again, right there, you can't miss it with that, with that jacket cover. And to everyone else, thank you very much for tuning in. Again, we're trying to put out content, or as I like to call it, great conversations as regularly as we can. So please do consider subscribing to this channel, sharing it with friends and family, and hopefully um, taking some pleasure in it. So with that, I wish everybody farewell from Finneran's Wake. Oh,